Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to the Equip Project podcast. I'm back with Jim. Jim, how are you holding up? I'm doing very well, Ollie. Thanks. I'm surviving the madness. My, my sister phoned me in a panic this morning um, because my eldest brother, David, uh, she said, has cut his own hair. So <laughs> <laughs> I think he put a bowl around his head. So I'm expecting to see a Franciscan monk turn up next oh, time I see him. Uh, well, I see Rachel cut my hair yesterday. Did you notice that? Did you notice any difference? Uh, well, uh, I have such respect for Rachel. I'm going to say it looks great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Rachel cut my hair in the kitchen, which was a terrifying experience, I have to, I have to be honest. Uh, at one point, I was fairly sure one of my ears was going to be lopped off. Well, one of the best decisions I took um, in the run-up to this whole lockdown was to go to a hairdresser's and get my hair cut. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. There's some pretty shocking haircuts going Absolutely. around on, on social yes. media at the moment. But, Jim, I'd say probably the most hotly anticipated uh, section of, of this episode is... The, the second travel story that you're <laughs> going to share with us. Well, uh, yeah, these are dark times, but I suppose we all need a bit of a, a, a lift. So, look, this is my favourite travel story, and it doesn't actually uh, involve me. Uh, it that's involves dis- that's disappointing, <laughs> to be honest, from the outside. But <laughs> involves a friend, and I use the term friend in the Facebook sense of the term. That somebody I vaguely remember meeting once. He actually told me the story in our church. It was years ago, and at the time, uh, he was a, a sales director for a small telco uh, in the Midwest of the United States. And it so happened that he had to go and visit a client uh, in some remote part of Illinois. And being a sensible chap, he didn't want to spend the night in a soulless motel, so he told his PA, get me an airline who will give me a day return, who will get me in and out the same day. And she said, there are no airlines. So he said, try harder. She came back an hour later and she said, well, look, I find a firm now that specialise in crop spraying. Uh, but they will do a day return. They do specialised forms of uh, air transport, but they will they will give you a lift. So he said, that's fine. The day for the trip arrived, he turns up at O'Hare Airport in Chicago, walks to increasingly remote parts of the airfield, finds uh, the name of this airline uh, written on ballpoint pen on a piece of torn-off cardboard directing him down a set of steps, and he walks out. And to his amazement, he finds uh, in front of him an air ambulance, a hospital plane, Okay. Now, for this story to work, I need to tell you two things. The first thing is about my friend, like myself, is a corpulent gentleman, okay? He is what we might call gravitationally <laughs> challenged, okay? And so being a sensible person, he travels in, a, in an old tracksuit uh, and carries his, his business suit in, 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 in a, a luggage carrier. Because when you get to middle age, Ollie, there is simply nothing like the comfort of an elasticated waist. You will find this out. <laughs> Uh, the second thing I need to tell you is about air ambulances. I've never been on one, but apparently they don't have normal seats. Okay, they have the seat is just this tubular steel frame with two broad strips of webbing across the back. I think it's because they have to put them flat if they want stretchers in or something. Okay, right. So my friend clambered onto the plane and discovered, to his astonishment, there was one other passenger. This in exquisitely beautiful girl in her early 30s uh, sitting uh, elegantly dressed wearing leather gloves flicking through the pages of a glossy magazine and middle-aged men get slightly confused in this sort of a situation and he thought do I sit beside her well that might be slightly creepy do I sit behind her well that'll be even more creepy so for better or worse he decided to sit directly in front of her okay pilot got on plane took off and as the plane was going through the clouds he felt this gloved hand touch the very base of his back and of course one's brain is processing a vast amount of information in a very short space of time at this point and he suddenly noticed that the decor of the of the plane the color of the carpets on the walls was exactly the same color uh, as the color of his tracksuit 
and he, he made this discovery as the lady, believing that she was holding uh, the seat pocket, pulled back the elasticator top <laughs> of his tracksuit bottom and rammed the magazine down into his nether region. And he said he was so embarrassed that he sat there bolt upright for the whole 45-minute journey. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> oh my word, that is. I don't quite know if that's brilliant or not. That's terrifying. But um, I've, I've dined out on that story for years. <laughs> oh man, unbelievable. Well, Jim, I'm sure people after hearing that, people are going to be even more desperate for for next week's story. I don't know how you're going to top that. <laughs> how are we going to bridge into something serious? Yeah, I know. I'm li- desperately trying to think of a link at the moment. <laughs> I think we're, I think we might go with the meanwhile. <laughs> Oh man. Anyhow, anyhow, Jim, back to some serious content here. Uh, obviously, Easter is coming up this Sunday. Uh, very strange time for, for many people. Um, churches shut across the country. Um, but we wanted to make this episode into an episode that really helped us understand more about the resurrection. So just by way of introduction, could you tell us a little bit about um, yeah, what we're going to be talking about? Yeah, I think we'll be talking about the arguments uh, for the resurrection from mostly from a historical perspective, but then at the end of the conversation from a philosophical perspective. But before before we do that, Ollie, could I could I uh, be a little unruly and say something about next week's episode? Absolutely, yeah, okay. absolutely. So, look, we are we are both really grateful for the number of young Christians who who listen to our <laughs> meandering conversations uh, on this podcast. But it struck me in recent weeks that God is moving in the world at this moment. I really think the world is being shaken. And I remember C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So we all have friends and loved ones and colleagues who are not Christians. And usually there is really little chance of engaging them with the gospel. But I think this pandemic has caused non-Christians to think deeply about life and death. So next week's episode will be designed to engage with people like that. And we would really love you to help us engage with non-Christians by promoting next week's episode on your whatever these social media channels are. Ollie understands them, I do. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, listen to it yourself first, of course, to, to make sure it would be appropriate for your friends. But this may well be the time when non-Christians will listen to a straightforward, um, respectful and rational explanation of the Christian faith. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we'd massively appreciate your support, guys, in holding out this hope that only the gospel can bring into people's lives. It's a wonderful opportunity. Um, so do look out for next week's episode, and it'll be really great to, to work together for the Lord in this way. But Jim, on Easter weekend, um, with Easter weekend coming up, we're going to be thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the early church regarded the resurrection as the foundation of the gospel message they preached. But many critics in Roman society simply dismissed the idea that a man could be raised from the dead. They thought that was a load of nonsense. In that sense, nothing much has changed, I guess. Young Christians listening to us know that the story of the resurrection is foundational to their faith, but they also realize that it's a real stumbling block for many of their non-Christian friends. Yeah. <clears throat> now, there are some liberal voices in Christendom, uh, even today, who think that we shouldn't bother examining the historical and the philosophical basis uh, of the resurrection story. You know, they say, why can't we not simply immerse ourselves in the story as it's presented to us in Scripture and feel its emotional and rhetorical power? Why can't we just regard the Easter story as a metaphor, a, a sort of a rich myth that brings color to our, our understanding of life? 
they would say, surely it simply expresses the deep human need to find light in the midst of darkness or to believe that hope will triumph over despair. There's an obvious danger in that approach, Sherman, and that's that Christianity isn't a set of philosophical ideas wrapped up in rich mythology. Christianity claims to be truth revealed in history. So either the Lord Jesus did die and rise again, or he didn't. It's just that simple. The resurrection either happened or it didn't happen. And if we don't seriously address the historicity of the Easter story, then we're allowing our culture to reduce Christianity to a comforting myth. So the Gospels become almost like a, a psychological crutch. And when we preach, uh, when we preach the Gospel, we're just like children whistling in the dark to keep ourselves from getting scared. Uh, that's spot on, Ollie. I mean, the Bible itself will not allow us to walk that path. The Apostle Peter says in his second epistle, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So in a postmodern culture like ours, the great battle the Christian church faces is the battle for truth. And so young adults listening to us now have to stand in a post-Christian society and we have to declare that Christianity is true. Now, it might be comforting and inspiring. It might bring meaning and hope into our lives, but that's all secondary. The first and most important question is this. Is Christianity true? So we have to examine the historical and the philosophical basis of the resurrection story. Let's start then with the historical question, because one of the unique features of Christianity is that it actually opens itself up to historical investigation. It presents us with evidence that we can actually evaluate. Yeah, and that's unique. There, there's no other world religion that even gets near that. <laughs> Have you ever heard anyone argue over the historical truthfulness of the myths in Buddhist or Hindu scriptures? Of course not. We should never feel uncomfortable when non-Christians ask hard questions about the Bible because Christianity has been designed by God to allow them to do exactly that. And that's not a commonly held view, Jim. Often Christians think there's this huge wall between believers and unbelievers. And on one side of the wall, everyone believes the Bible to be the word of God. And on the other side, nobody even bothers to open the Bible. Here's the interesting thing, Ollie. In the scholarly world, that division is not there. The really surprising insight here is that in the past 100 years, many of the best arguments for the historical accuracy of the resurrection story have been made by atheist scholars, men and women who simply treat the 27 documents of the New Testament like any other ancient document. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there has been a reversal in scholarship in recent decades, a reversal that's very much in our favour. Over the course of this discussion about history, I'm going to try and set out four historical facts that the overwhelming majority of scholars now agree upon. Now, let me stress here that only a small minority of these scholars would call themselves evangelicals. Many are openly atheistic, but they support these four important facts, facts on which the story of the resurrection exists. That's really quite surprising, Jim, and I think a lot of young Christians would be unaware of that. I'm really keen to hear what those four big facts are. So let's take each of them in turn. What's the first? The first fact is that the Lord Jesus died by crucifixion. It's not just the New Testament documents which record this fact. Ancient historians like Josephus, Tacitus, Lucian all say the same thing. Perhaps the most critical scholar around today is an agnostic called John Dominic Crossman. He heads up a group called the Jesus Seminary, you may have heard of them. And he says this, that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. A lot of popular atheist websites base their arguments on old scholarship. 
Maybe 100 years ago, the so-called swoon theory was a popular one. And according to that hypothesis, our Lord didn't actually die. He merely fainted and then was taken down from the cross and placed in a, in a tomb. And, and in that cold tomb, he, he revived. Yeah, more recent studies have concluded that that theory should be dismissed. Studies into Roman scourging, the way crucified people actually died, and the procedures followed by Roman executioners all underscore the New Testament's testimony that Jesus died. The medical details provided in the Gospel records are astonishingly helpful here. The spear wound recorded in John 19 caused blood and water to flow out from the Lord's body. Now for that to happen, one of two medical conditions must have occurred. Either the chest was so terribly damaged that hemorrhagic fluid flowed out, or else the pericardium became ruptured. Now, either of those explanations are catastrophic. So it's safe to say that not a single serious scholar today denies that Jesus died by crucifixion. So that's fact number one. Jesus died by crucifixion. What's the second one? The second established fact is that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. The famous New Testament scholar Gary Habermas says this, There is virtual consensus among scholars who study Jesus' resurrection that subsequent to his death by crucifixion, Jesus' disciples really believed that he appeared to them risen from the dead. I mentioned earlier a reversal in scholarship in recent decades, and this is where we see the reversal most clearly. Perhaps, you see, a century ago, it was popular to claim that the resurrection was a myth that evolved a long time after Jesus' death, maybe, uh, I don't know, in the 3rd and 4th centuries. This idea of resurrection emerged from theologians who were so far removed from the historical events that they have no credibility. Well, that popular claim has been comprehensively rubbished. Atheist scholars study the letters of Paul, particularly Corinthians and Galatians. Now, those letters can be accurately dated. And when you look at the various visits that Paul records he made to discuss the gospel with the other apostles, it becomes clear that the account of the resurrection is very, very early. And these scholars then notice that often Paul quotes very early creeds or hymns. You know, they were looking at the syntax of of the Greek. I mean, think of 1 Corinthians 11 or uh, Philippians 2. Those passages are clearly composed for use in liturgy. So they were in circulation just a few years after the Lord's death, perhaps even months after the cross. So the old legend theory has been dismantled. The four Gospels come along a a couple of decades after Paul's early letters, and they, of course, back up in great detail all that Paul had written earlier. So even if you take the most liberal, critical dating of the Gospel records and the Book of Acts, we can say that four accounts were written within 70 years of Jesus' death at the latest. There's a lot of evidence in support of much earlier dating for the Synoptic Gospels, of course. I'm just pointing out that even the most critical dating is still hugely impressive. The disciples didn't just claim that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. They believed it with such a passion that they were prepared to be martyred for it. Perhaps there is someone listening to us now who is completely skeptical about the resurrection. Well, they would have to explain then how a group of frightened, despairing men suddenly changed into these courageous evangelists who turned the world upside down. Remember, that change brought Western civilization about, so you can't deny that it happened. And it is that perspective which knocks all the various fraud theories on the head. The idea that the disciples stole the body and then concocted a fantastical story, one that could never emerge from a Jewish mind, it simply lacks credibility. The fact that these men died for their beliefs can only be explained by the sincerity of their beliefs. So if we step forward a couple of decades and look at the writings of Clement of Rome or Polycarp, uh, he knew John personally, 
we find exactly the same passionate belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, those writings are dated to about 110 AD, so they're incredibly early. Now, when you put all that evidence together, we get multiple early and eyewitness accounts of the disciples' claims that Jesus rose from the dead. A few years ago, a film called Zeitgeist was available on the internet. It caused some young Christian adults to get upset, and the film tries to convince the viewer that the story of the resurrection is a legend, an invention of the 3rd century or the 4th century. And the filmmaker's big idea is that the Christian story of our Lord's death and resurrection is a copycat story of ancient gods who die and rise again. There are lots of these stories around, say the filmmakers, stories of a god who enters the world through a virgin birth who dies and then rises again. What should we make of claims like that, Jim? Well, to use a theological term, uh, that is a load of old tosh. Um, The three gods most commonly wheeled out in support of the legend theory are Osiris, Horus and Mithras. Now, Mithras springs from a rock. Horus' birth is so ridiculous and disgusting I won't even recount it uh, (laughs) while I'm being recorded. And there is nothing like the story of Mary's virgin birth of the Saviour. But more importantly, none of those three gods are resurrected. Osiris ends up as a king of the underworld. Horus simply recovers from a scorpion bite, and Mithras never even dies. I don't think any serious scholars in the world today support the legendary view of the resurrection. Christians have celebrated the resurrection from the earliest months of the church's existence. So fact number two is that Jesus' disciples believed sincerely that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. Perhaps a cynic might say the grief and sheer emotional distress of the situation caused the disciples to form this view. Well, that explanation is psychologically incoherent. But your suggestion leads me to establish fact number three, which is that sceptics suddenly started to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It wasn't just ardent disciples who believed in the resurrection. Think of that great persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, how he was suddenly changed. Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, is the man who created Western civilization. So all of us should accord him respect. And we need to answer this question. What caused Paul to change his mind of Jesus Christ so radically? He was a bitter enemy of Christianity. He did his best to snuff it out. But Paul himself, as well as Luke, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian and Oregon all document his conversion. And the trigger, says the historical data, was an appearance of the risen Christ. You could have made uh, a similar point as well by talking about the Apostle James, because James was the half-brother of Jesus, and before the Lord's death, he was dismissive of Jesus' claims. He thought the whole thing was mad. But he testifies to a meeting with the risen Christ, and he states that it was this encounter which caused him to become a pillar in the early church. There is considerable historical evidence outside the New Testament about James, who was martyred for his faith. That's right. Now, these facts have to be explained somehow. Once we agree that Jesus died from crucifixion, that his disciples sincerely believed that the risen Christ had appeared to them, and that skeptics like Paul and James were also revolutionized by a similar experience, we have to set these facts out and work out what to do with them. You said that there were four agreed historical facts. Could you tell us the last one? Yeah, there's a fourth fact here, which is that the tomb was empty. Now, this fourth fact doesn't command the same level of support among critical scholars, but the numbers are still really impressive. About 75% of all scholars today agree that the tomb is empty. It would have been impossible for Christianity to get off the ground if Jesus' body had remained in the tomb. 
All the enemies of Christ had to do was to show the body. But they didn't because they couldn't. It's interesting that Justin Martyr and Tertullian record that the enemies of Christianity argued that the disciples had stolen the body from the tomb. Now, when your enemy admits that the tomb is empty, you're on pretty solid ground. Yeah, exactly, Jim. So we've talked about this quite surprising idea that in the world of scholarship, there is consensus among all sorts of people, even atheists, over these four historical facts. Jesus died from crucifixion. His disciples believed that he'd risen from the dead and had appeared to them. Skeptics like Paul also came to believe that. And the tomb is empty. How strong are those facts in making a case for the resurrection? Well, at first sight, those four facts mightn't seem all that impressive to you, but in combination, they become very strong. I mean, we've already talked about how the swoon theory has been dismissed because of them. But take the old theories that the disciples hallucinated or were deluded into believing the resurrection. Those theories can't explain Paul or the empty tomb. In fact, all the old conspiracy theories found on atheist websites run into real trouble when they're measured against our four agreed facts. So the Bible's assertion that Jesus rose from the dead becomes historically more plausible. For many non-Christians, the lack of any historical, credible alternative to the resurrection isn't enough to make them believe in it. Their big problem is that the resurrection doesn't fit within their worldview. Even if the historical data supports a resurrection, philosophically it just seems incredible. I think that's a fair point, Ollie. I don't think anyone is ever going to be convinced by historical arguments on their own. I can't believe I'm going to say this. But the real move here is to view the resurrection as a flip rather than a blip. I think I think you're on to something with that line, Jim. Um, I can see that I can see that going somewhere. Uh, do you want to explain what what you mean by that? Yeah, I think I'd probably better. <laughs> the mistake many non-Christians make is that they think about the resurrection of Jesus as a blip in the way reality works. In other words, they regard it as a one-off anomaly. So according to this view, life trundles along in a fairly regular way. People are born, they live, and they die. But then there's this blip when Jesus is raised from the dead. And after that, well, life goes back to normal again with people being born, living and dying. So the resurrection is seen as an anomalous blip in the story of the human race. Yeah, and that way of looking at the resurrection will always make it seem incredible. Why should someone believe in something that is so removed from their own experience of life? I remember students once using those exact words to me. So I asked him if he believed in the Big Bang. Of course I do, he said. And have you experienced many Big Bangs in your own personal life, I asked? The Big Bang is a singularity. It's a moment when reality changed. It flipped if reality, if you like. And that is the right way to view the resurrection. It isn't a one-off blip in the way things work. It is a singularity, a moment when reality flips, when reality reconfigures to allow a new chapter of life to begin. The resurrection changed everything. So let me try and explain that. So let's, what do we may call the Twilight of Eden... Um, darkened into the dark night of the soul. There seemed to be this inexorable slide uh, into hopeless darkness. But everything pivoted around the moment when Christ was raised from the dead. Now is it where we are walking toward the dawn into the light of the eternal day. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, says Malachi. Or in the language of the Song of Songs, We wait here only until the shadows flee away and the day breaks. It's only when the cameras pan back that we see the profound rationality of the resurrection. You begin to see the Easter story as the hinge of history, the pivot on which eternity turns. So Christ's resurrection is not a blip. It's not a weird anomaly in a world that never changes. It's the moment 
when evening turns into morning. So yes, this old world is still a veil of tears, but we walk through it with the risen Christ, the man on the other side of death, and so we can suddenly view the present in the light of the future. Paul makes that exact point in chapter 15 of his first letter to the Corinthians. And he says this, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, that, that final verse, verse 20, is one of the greatest most moving verses in all of Scripture. And Paul, as you've just quoted, has painted this bleak, desolate picture of the human condition. And then he allows all that hopeless desolation of the world to come crashing down against verse 20. Just think about that single conjunction, the word but. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And so we can allow all our desolation, the great weight of our unhappiness and loss to come crashing down in that verse. It is the bulwark for the soul. So can you explain what actually did happen when Jesus died and rose again, Jim? Well, think for a moment about the time when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, A few years after that miracle, Lazarus died again, the way we all do. So in John 11, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, it's as if he was let out for a few short years on parole. The prison house of death was still standing strong. Before very long, Lazarus died again. And this time it looked as if it was forever and ever. But then Jesus died. As the creeds put it, Christ descended into the grave. He entered into the prison house of death. The eternal life, the source of life, came face to face with death. And in that moment, the authority of death was destroyed. And because Christ had paid the ransom price, the gates of Hades came crashing down. Christ led his people out of captivity and into the presence of his Father in heaven. This was no temporary pass. This was no parole. Christ now lives in the power of an endless life. Thank you, Jim. It's been really wonderful thinking about how the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a historical reality, about the fact we can be confident in the historical fact that Jesus died by crucifixion, that his disciples sincerely believed that the Saviour rose from the dead and appeared to them. We know that skeptics like Paul and James had their worldviews turned upside down by a similar experience. And we know that the tomb was empty. Those facts are useful. But the real confidence, I think, comes when we see the profound rationality of the resurrection. Easter Sunday was no anomaly, no temporary blip in an unchanging world. The resurrection is the pivot of eternity, the moment when the trajectory of the human story moved from evening to morning. The resurrection is the source of all hope and joy in our lives. Thank you for listening to episode 23 of the Equip Project podcast. It's been really great having you guys with us. Do remember to help us promote next week's episode, which is designed to explain the Christian faith to thoughtful unbelievers. We're going to be putting stuff up on Instagram, uh, and we'd really love you to join with us in in making that available to non-Christian friends and family. But for now, that's all from us. If you'd like to reach out to us, please do so via Instagram or via our email address, theequipproject at gmail.com.